This is the user experience Gamburg Radio. Thanks for listening. As Arnie said, I travel around a lot and I give a lot of talks. Um, I don't think I've ever given a talk this close to so many strip clubs. So this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. Thank you. No, um, and, and I appreciate the soundtrack as well that we'll, we'll be having throughout. So um, I'll do my best to, to, to be slightly more interesting than the music. Um, I want to start by telling you a story uh, very quickly. Um, uh, when I graduated from college, uh, undergraduate school 19 years ago, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, plan or direction about where I was going to go, and so I uh, immediately took a job and I joined the circus. I graduated on Saturday and I joined the circus on Monday. And the pictures that you're seeing on the monitor, these are pictures that I took back in 1995 from the circus where I worked. It's, it was called the Clyde Beatty, it's still called the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus, and I spent six months on the road with the circus. The circus worked two shows every day, three shows on Saturdays, with no days off. So during that six-month period, I saw the circus 400 times in a row. Needless to say, my children will never see the circus, <laughs> at, le at least not with me. And what's really interesting is that you travel around a lot, and, and a lot of people love the circus, and a lot of interesting people both uh, come to see the circus and work there. And so I met a lot of interesting people over the course of that summer, uh, traveling up and down the East Coast. Um, and, uh, and, and recently, actually, I was, um, uh, I was coming back from New York City, and I saw it. I hadn't been there in almost 20 years. And there it was, set up in New Jersey on the way home from, from New York City, on the side of the road. And I stopped by to see, this is what it looks like today, to see it and see if there was anybody still there from the time when I worked there. And unfortunately, there wasn't a single person who uh, uh, I remembered. But there were a lot of interesting people that I met when I was there. Uh, the first interesting person I met was Steven Tyler. Um, that's him, right there. Um, he looks pretty much the same uh, in the last 20 years. And that's me, next to him. Uh, 20 years has been a little tougher, at least on my hairline, <laughs> in, the, in the last 20 years. But he came to the circus, and it was fun to meet him, and it, it was cool. And uh, another really interesting person that I met that summer was this guy. Uh, the human cannonball. This guy's job was pretty sweet, actually. He worked four minutes a day. Now remember, we did two shows every day, which means that he worked for two minutes every show. That's it, and he made a decent salary. Now his job, in case you can't see him, by the way, that's him right there at the top, okay? He, his job was to, was to come in, get loaded into the cannon, the ringmaster would push a button, a little puff of smoke would come up, and a spring would fire this guy across the tent, and he would land in a net on the other side. Now, he worked four minutes a day, which left about 23 and a half plus hours for him to not do a whole lot. And so I spent a lot of time talking to this guy. And one day we got onto the topic of how you become the human cannibal. How you actually become, there's no career path for this. There's not a, a, uh, a CV. What's under CV if, you, if, you're, if you want to be the human cannibal? And so I asked him, right, how do you, how do you, how do you become the human cannibal? And he said, uh, he told me the story. And the story, of course, as these stories often do, starts with the previous human cannibal, the guy who was the human cannibal before him. Now, the story goes like this. The previous human cannibal uh, did this act for a long time. And the way that they would determine uh, where to put the net every night was the same. They would take that red truck and they would put up the tent. Every two days, we were in a new spot. So every two days, they pulled a red truck into the tent, they would aim the cannon, and they would put a dummy, a mannequin, essentially a human-sized doll, 
into the cannon that weighed the same as the previous human cannonball. And they would fire the cannon, and wherever that thing landed is where they put the net. And this worked every night, day in and day out, every night, except for one night. They got, the circus got to the next place, we, we drove overnight every night, the circus got to the next location late. And so they put the tent up, but they didn't have time to test the cannon. And so they left it for the next day, and they left the dummy, the mannequin, they left it outside overnight, and it rained that night. The next day, they did what they had done every day since then. They took the wet dummy, they put it in the cannon, they fired it, they saw where it landed, and that's where they put the net. That afternoon, in front of 4,000 children, the previous human cannonball did this, went in there, he waved goodbye to 4,000 children, and they fired him, and he went way past the net, and he landed on the ground. Tragic story, he didn't die, which is good news. He did get hurt, badly, but he lived, which is good news. And so he went back to Florida to recover. Florida, in case you don't know, is where all circuses come from. It's just the home of circuses. And, um, and he went home, and, and, and everybody in Florida has a pool, and he saw his pool boy, the guy who cleans his pool, was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American football player, and he said, do you want a promotion from pool boy to human cannonball? And sure enough, he took the gig, and that's how he got this job. Now, the interesting part, why am I telling you this story? Other than it being a kind of a, a fun and fascinating story that maybe you haven't heard before, uh, is this. The Human Cannonball's team made the same assumptions day in and day out about what would work for them, about how to do their job, and about how to be successful, until those assumptions were no longer valid. And then their work met with tragic consequences. And the same thing goes for us. The assumptions that we've made time and time again about how we build software products have changed. And so we can't keep doing the same things we've always done and hope that our products succeed the way they've succeeded in the past. Now the reason, the reason things are changing is this. Mark Andreessen famously said in 2011 that software is eating the world. And what he meant by that is that every business of scale or every business that seeks to scale in the 21st century is a software-based business. At its core, it has to be. Right? Think about a company like Amazon. What business is Amazon in? Are they in the books business, or the movies business, or the drone business, or the phone business? No, they're in the software business. They're in the software of logistics, and customer, uh, uh, customer logistics, and customization, and uh, delivery, and so forth. And so if you don't see yourself in a software business soon, uh, it's, there's a good chance that you may get disrupted if you don't treat your business as a software business. And we've seen this more recently uh, with the New York Times. It's, it's been Have you guys seen this report? This is the New York Times innovation report that leaked a few months ago. This is a fascinating study where uh, the New York Times held a six-month internal audit about why they're losing ground to BuzzFeed and Fox and The Verge. And it turns out that the New York Times sees itself as a 150-year-old journalistic organization that delivers its content through a digital channel. When in fact, the report says we have to look at ourselves as a digital business, a software business that happens to do great journalism if we hope to survive and compete against BuzzFeed and Vox and The Verge and so forth, which is a fascinating shift. It's very difficult for organizations, especially older organizations like this, to shift. And we're seeing this time and time again 
from other companies. This is a quote from Ford. We talk about computers shaping the future of automotive experiences. And we hear the same thing from companies like FedEx, where we run, this is the guy who runs FedEx, and he says, look, I run a software company inside of FedEx. We're in the software business, the software of logistics and the software of delivery. And every time software comes along, we tend to, to dismiss it as, as uh, you know, a nuisance or a disturbance, but not certainly not a disruptive force that might upend our business. We saw this with Napster when Napster came out. And the first thing that we tried to do when Napster came out was litigate it out of existence. That's the Recording Industry Association of America, a lovely organization that tried to litigate Napster out of existence. And this gentleman here, Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica, led a very public PR campaign against Napster 12 years ago. Today, guess what? You can download Lars's music directly from Spotify. Right? Same thing with Tesla. Really interesting company to see what they're doing, how they're upending the automotive industry, they're upending the automotive dealership industry. Right? They're selling direct to consumers, they don't have dealerships, they're sending upgrades over the air. Unheard of stuff. And what is the American car dealership lobby trying to do in the United States? Sue them out of existence. Right? Try to get them to change the way they do business because they're scared. Netflix, same thing. When Netflix came out, how many of you thought that we would uh, actually believe that we would change fundamentally the way that we create, distribute, and consume digital media? And yet today, again, in the United States, I challenge you to find a blockbuster that's still in business. You know, DVD rental business. These things don't exist. And, and the threats that, that these companies missed is that software is the key. Software is eating the world. Now well, look, when we, uh, this is how we used to build products. And in this assembly line model, everything is known, especially when you're building cars. We know what has to go into the car. We know exactly what the car is going to look like when it's done. We know exactly how the car is going to be used when it's done. In that situation, you can optimize that process and you can build rigid culture around that process to ensure that it is the most efficient and least wasteful. And what we did was we took that process and we applied it to software. The same thing, the assembly line, right? The, which essentially turned into the waterfall. Where somebody defines it, somebody designs, somebody develops, somebody tests, and somebody deploys. But software is different than cars. Software is complex. The end state of software is unknown. In fact, there is no end state to software because of this. Software today, in 2014, Software has become continuous. It's just an ongoing process of delivery and learning and conversation and optimization. There is no end state to software because we deliver software using the web, using mobile apps, using whatever technology is available to us today. And the pace at which we can deliver software is staggering. Let me share a fact with you. This is how often Amazon pushes code to production. This is how often Amazon pushes code to production. Live code to real users five times a minute. Somebody at Amazon sees something new. Now this doesn't mean that they've completely redesigned the checkout process five times a minute, or the product page, or, or, or uh, you know, the sign-up flow. They're taking tiny chunks of the product and they're launching tiny tests. And they're seeing whether or not people are reacting in a positive way, whether they can change customer behavior with these tiny tests. And if they see positive change, they scale and they optimize. 
And if they see negative change, they roll it back. But the, 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 the impact of that bad code, if you want to call it, is tiny. But the learning value is huge. And so what they've done is they've built this sensing layer that allows them to have a continuous conversation with their audience. It allows them to build continuous learning into the way they build products and allows them to respond to whatever they're getting back in an unbelievably fast pace. And they've built their organization around this model of sensing and responding as quickly as possible so that they're never doing things that aren't positively affecting customers for very long. And they're learning tons from all of those experiments that didn't meet their objectives. And yet, I travel around a lot, I work with a lot of companies. Most companies that I work with are still thinking like this. They're thinking about shipping features, they're shipping releases, they're trying to think about things like cars, like a model year. Well, next year we'll ship these six things and we'll call it something new and it'll have a new brand and we can charge more for it and we can market it. And it takes this approach where everything has to be perfect for that model year launch. We have to get it all right as if we know exactly what our customers will do when we give them this software. I have direct experience with this. You guys used to get these in the mail here in Germany, right? Back in the day, I think I sent you a few, personally. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I used to work at AOL about 12 years ago. And I worked on a software that went on th onto these disks. We worked for six months to get everything perfect for what we call the GM release. GM stands for Gold Master. Right, this is a music conference, that should be a fairly uh, good term. The Gold Master is the disk from which all the other disks are copied. Right, so if you're going to make 15 million copies of something, it better be perfect, or as close to perfect as possible. And so we would work for six months, we'd ship these disks in the mail to everybody in the world, right? and then people would install them or not install them, they would use them for six months, we'd collect data, and then we'd work for another six months. That's a 12-month feedback loop before we could make any update to the software based on any kind of usage. Compare that to 11.6 seconds. Right? That's the reality. That's what's changed. Right? And yet, we're still using these industrial era management tactics to drive our teams, to push them to commit to ideas up front, to commit to design, to commit to scope, and to commit to time. Believing that we know exactly what the software needs to be, what it needs to look like, and what customers will do with it once they get it. And so this continuous world changes things, it changes this way of working. We have to ask ourselves some questions. The first is this, what does a continuous world mean for our business? If we can build this sensing layer, this continuous conversation, how does that change the way that we do business? How can we take advantage of all this new information? If you start to build this continuous conversation, you are going to start drinking from the fire hose, as we say in the United States, of information, quantitative and qualitative information is coming in at an unbelievable pace. How do we take advantage of it? And then most importantly, how do we take the information and let our teams maximize their creativity, their learning, and their productivity so that they can do the best work that they can to build the most successful products? In order to do that, we have to build this culture of innovation. Now, innovation gets thrown around a lot these days. It's essentially becoming, lar it's largely meaningless at this point. So let me, let me clarify this point. A culture of innovation is a culture of learning, okay? It's a culture that values learning. That's the culture of Amazon. Every 11.6 seconds, they're sensing and responding and learning something. Uh, about a year and a half ago, my friend Dave Gray 
published a book called The Connected Company. I highly recommend you read it. And in that book, Dave uh, distinguishes between two types of strategy. He distinguishes between uh, something called deliberate strategy. Deliberate strategy is when the executive suite determines exactly what needs to, to be built, and they tell the teams to go build it, and the teams just execute. They don't ask questions, they just build what the boss says. And it comes from this perspective that management knows what's best, and the, and the teams are just there to execute the management's uh, wishes at that point. And in many cases, what ends up happening is, uh, is this. This is a short video clip that kind of illustrates what happens when we take deliberate strategy a bit too far. It. Do you even know what it is? It's gum. Yeah. It's a stick of the most amazing and sensational gum in the whole universe. <laughs> know why? Know why? Because this gum is a full three-course dinner all by itself. <laughs> why would anyone want that? It will be the end of all kitchens and all cooking. Just a little strip of Wonka's magic chewing gum, and that is all you will ever need at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This piece of gum happens to be tomato soup, roast beef, and blueberry pie. Why would anyone ever want that? Right? The worst thing you can possibly hear when you launch a product. That's the deliberate strategy makes a series of assumptions. In this case, Willy Wonka made the assumptions that no one wants to cook and no one wants to spend time in their kitchen anymore. And so he made a stick of gum that nobody wants. Right? That's what deliberate strategy is. It's making a series of assumptions, assuming that we know exactly what customers want and how they're going to react when we give them this product. And in reality, we actually have no idea what the end state is going to be of anything at the beginning. Right? This is how things could start out, and you never know where things could end up. Right? You've got a two-time president of the United States and potentially the next president of the United States in this photo. Right? You have no idea. That's, that's, that's what software is. We have, you have sort of the raw materials, but you have no idea where it's going to end up mm. at the end there. And so what's the, what's the opposite of that? The opposite um, that Dave talks about is emergent strategy. Emergent strategy lets the, the executive suite determine a, a direction for the company and then allows the teams, the room, and the slack in the system to experiment and learn which ideas solve this business problem. It's an organic strategy that comes from the bottom, not from the top, allowing, again, the teams to find the best solutions based on what the company thinks is important. And by running these experiments and continuously learning, you start to figure out how to, how to disrupt your own business and disrupt your competition. And, you've, and again, we've seen this over and over again from companies like Amazon. This is Jeff Bezos talking about experiments. Um, Eric Schmidt from Google talks about uh, swings or bats. Jack Welch talks about the same thing. It's about running as many experiments as you can because each time you do it, you learn something and you course correct if you're valuing learning. And so then how do we build a culture that supports this? And how do we build a structure in our organization that takes advantage of this way of working? At the core of a culture of innovation is the team. Okay. This is the, the atomic object of innovation. You can't get any smaller than this. You need a team. And that's what I want to focus the second half of this presentation on. Is what makes up an innovative team? And there's three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the anatomy of the team. I want to talk about how we task the team. How do we tell the team what to do? 
And then finally, how should the team work? Should, is there a specific process they should use? Should it be agile? Should it be lean or waterfall or whatever, right? So let's go through each one of these. Uh, the first, let's talk about the anatomy of the team. What is the makeup of the team? Right? We'll start with some anti-patterns. How not to build innovative teams. The first is silos. When you build discipline-specific silos, the engineers over here, the designers over there, the product managers here, marketing is over there, right? It isolates team members, and they don't communicate well. When they don't communicate well, they start to write things down. Writing things down means you have to write it, you have to send it, someone has to read it, digest it, react to it, and compose a response. It's a long process. Right? It's not efficient. It takes time. People feel like service providers when they sit in their disciplines. It's like being on that assembly line. I just do the thing that I do. My, I apply my coat of paint. You know, if you're the developer, you put the ones and zeros in the right order. If you're the designer, you put the pixels in the right order. And nobody feels like they have a, a picture of the whole thing. There's no product ownership. No one owns anything. Um, people make these keyhole decisions based on the little bit they know about the project when it gets handed to them. They don't have a clear sense of who the customer is, or what the problem is that we're trying to solve, or how this fits into a broader company strategy. And so, then, uh, and so what ends up happening is that these teams don't collaborate, and they don't build on each other's ideas, and they end up implementing somebody else's vision, doing just a good enough job to move on to the next thing. Now, I have direct experience with doing this the wrong way when I joined a company in 2008 called The Ladders, and I was tasked with building a design team there. And the first thing that I did was I set up a silo and then everything came through me. I was in the middle of that silo and all these requests would come to me, asking me if I was, if somebody had bandwidth, right? Do you have bandwidth for this project? Sure, Jennifer's got bandwidth, let's put, let's put her on it. We need some more design. Does, uh, do you have anybody? Yes, we have Jennifer, she has a little bit more bandwidth, right? We need a little bit more design. Who's got bandwidth? Well, Jennifer's got a little bit more, right? Now Jennifer's coming in every day, supporting three projects and deciding which two people she's going to piss off today. Right? because she's got to pick the thing she's going to work on that day. And because of that, designers were doing just enough work to move from project to project and not feeling like they were part of that team. And so the question becomes, what team structure facilitates a culture of innovation? How do we build these teams? Right. So the anatomy of the team is this. First of all, the team is small. Six to eight people, what Jeff Bezos calls a two-pizza team. It's important to note that these are American pizzas. So, right? It's a big difference. If you can't feed your team with two pizzas, the team is too big. You have to break it up. Okay, small teams are great for communication. They know they know who, who's on the everybody knows who's on the team. They're great for management. You know who is responsible for what, and they're great for accountability. There's nowhere to hide. If you don't do your job on a six-person team, the other five people know it right away. You can't hide from that. So small team. The second aspect of an innovative team is co-located. Everyone is in the same place, sitting next to each other. Not in the same office, not in the same campus, literally sitting next to each other. That is how conversation and collaboration happens. Now, if you work with colleagues who are distributed across the world or across the country, the one requirement you have to still make this work is that you have to be awake at the same time. Okay? If you're not awake at the same time, you can't have real-time conversation. This doesn't work. It breaks down. Small, co-located, dedicated. Everyone is working on this project. No one is going off to fix bugs on another project. No one is going to work on the CEO's pet initiative. Everyone is working on this because there's a cost to context switching. And on a small team, we're waiting for you to come back. We can't move until you come back. 
So we're holding people up. Small, co-located, dedicated, self-sufficient. Everything the team needs to do, the team can do. Design, develop, ship, write copy, market, QA, whatever it is. It doesn't mean that you need somebody from each one of those disciplines. You just need people on the team to be able to do that. We value competencies over roles. Okay. Those are the four qualities of an innovative team. The next is how do we task the team? How do we tell the team what to do? Now this is one option. I've worked with companies where this is a vital option. We just kind of yell at them for a while and see what happens. And, you know, some work inevitably gets done. But let's talk about some other anti-patterns. My favorite, uh, my favorite anti-pattern of how not to tell teams what to do is this. It's called the roadmap. If you guys are familiar with the product roadmap, but it's a terrific little piece of propaganda. And the point of the roadmap is to give you a, a false sense of where you are and where you're headed. And it looks great, right? We're here and we're going there. And there are five steps between here and there, and we're going to get there on Tuesday. Right? Now, I don't know about your experience, but my experience has been that product roadmaps often look like this because we learn things along the way, we experience difficulties or challenges in implementing the vision. We learned that the thing that we were working on was hard, harder than we expected, or the competition has thrown us a curveball, or that the market that we're building for has fundamentally shifted. And so we have, to, we have to adjust what we're doing, and we really don't know exactly what it's going to look like or when we're going to get there. And you're seeing this now. Companies are starting to evolve the way they plan their work. This is a, a recent uh, quote from a recent blog post from the Guilt Group, where they talk about how they don't, they don't maintain a roadmap document. Their roadmap is simply a list of initiatives, business goals that they're targeting, and periodically they check the prioritization of those business goals. Are these still relevant to us as a company? And if not, let's do something else. Right? They don't commit to feature sets, and they don't commit to releases. And you're seeing this theme over and over again. This is a quote from Kent Beck, who was one of the authors of the Agile Manifesto, where he talks about our product roadmaps should be lists of questions, not lists of features. The question is, should we build this feature? Not go build this feature. Right? Because when we, when we uh, make up feature-based roadmaps, what we end up doing is incentivizing our teams to create output, to create features. And then we end up with things like this. This is the Microsoft Word version of a guitar. 95% okay. of this guitar is useless to 95% of the people who would ever pick this thing up. Right? This guitar was designed for Pat Metheny. He can play it. That's it. Right? The rest of us can play that one long net, that fretboard, the long one. Right. Uh, this is what happens when we incentivize our teams to build features. They just build and build and build with no recognition of why they're building, if it's working, is it usable, is it desirable, is it solving a problem. And unfortunately, features on their own are simply not a measure of success. Right? We have 30 years of jokes because this thing was launched and nobody uses it. Right? Because it's not good, it doesn't work well. And yet we incentivize and we incentivize to build things that people don't end up wanting. Right? Remote controls are my favorite example of this. Right? They need to turn the TV on, change the channel, and change the volume. That's it. Why do they have 10,000 buttons? Um, another anti-pattern is the annual budgeting process. We make a plan, we commit to budgets for next year. Right? Can you imagine if in 2005 you made a budget, your, your mobile budget for 2006? 
right, before the iPhone came out and changed everything, and yet we continue to do this, assuming that we know exactly what initiatives will cost next year. Now, I have direct ex experience with this as well. This was not my boss, but he looks a lot like this back at the ladders. Now, the ladders was a job board that catered to people who made $100,000 or more. My boss, the CEO, realized one day that our numbers were flat. Revenue, retention, acquisition, everything was flat. And so he did what he always did, was he retreated into his office, and he built a deliberate strategy. And then he came down and he told us exactly what we're going to do. And we took that strategy and we spent nine months and 50 people's worth of time to build his vision. We planned nine months worth of work. We budgeted the whole, essentially the whole next year to this initiative. And the initiative was, let's give every paying member of our site a job search assistant in New York. Okay, This required that we redesign everything. Acquisition, marketing, fu uh, work funnels, um, the call center, the call center scripts. We had to hire people. We had to, to, to um, completely redefine our the way we charged for the product and refunds and everything. And after uh, six months after launching it, it failed and we shut it down. All right, so we planned for it for nine months and the whole thing failed. And the reason it failed is because we never tested any of our assumptions. For example, I'll just give you one assumption. Right? One assumption we made was that the average user of our site, now the average user was male, 55 years old, 25 years of work experience, and made $200,000 a year. Okay? One assumption that we made is that that average user would want job search advice from a 22-year-old college kid. Guess what? They don't. Right? We could have tested this in advance. We simply could have taken 50 people, existing customers, and given them the service with two, with two in-house employees to see if it changes the way that they feel about the service, whether they get jobs, whether they tell their friends, whether they renew their subscription, right? All kinds of ways to test this. So instead of giving teams features to build, we task teams to achieve business outcomes. And we want to make those business outcomes granular. Reduce shopping cart abandonment. Increase repeat visitor rates. Something the teams can attribute directly to their work and something we know that the business needs. And what happens is that we're giving teams a problem to solve and not a solution to implement. And when you do that, teams get passionate because they're working on their own ideas, not your ideas. And they get to determine what looks like a good idea or what looks like a ridiculous idea. Right? And what works. Again, from the Guilt Group. The Guilt Group lays out some top-level, company-wide strategic KPIs, measures of success, and then they let the teams figure out what the tactical KPIs are. And when they hit those tactical metrics, they move on to the next one. Those are their measures of success. Now, what we need to do as an organization is we need to build a funding infrastructure that supports this way of working. Instead of funding somebody for a year, we take this small team, and we let them figure out what a good product idea is. And then we let them figure out how to optimize that product to move a business objective. And then every so often, that team has to come up for refunding. Eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks. That team comes up in front of the company and says, we've been working to increase retention rates to 25%. We've increased them by 8%. We've learned all of these things. And if you fund us again, we will do these next few things. That's where the executive decision-making comes in to say, terrific, we'll fund you for another quarter. Or not. 
right? We don't want to do this anymore, right? The company gets to decide incrementally how to spend its money instead of just saying, you get a million dollars for 2015. Maybe they hit their mark after a quarter's worth of funding. You don't have to spend that 750 on that team anymore. The last thing I want to talk about is this. How should the team work? We talked about the makeup of the team, right? Small, co-located, dedicated, self-sufficient. We talked about how to task the team, put them, uh, face them towards outcomes. The last thing is what process should the team work? How should we motivate the team to do their best work? And once again, we'll start with anti-patterns. Now, I want to start with a few more pictures from the circus because I have them I want to use them for something. But these are three pictures from the circus. From left to right, you've got the elephant act. You've got, in the middle, uh, these women who walked on big white balls up ramps. That was the act. And, on, and all the way on the right side of the screen is Charlie, who served our food three times a day if you chose to eat the food from Charlie. That was your choice, <laughs> depending how much of a gambling person you felt that particular day. Um, the point in this slide is there was no, no cross-functional collaboration in circus acts. Right? Can you imagine? I can imagine. Can you imagine? If we had tigers in the circus, if the human cannonball collaborated with the tiger trainer, right, he's already flying across the tent anyway. What if there were just a few tigers underneath there, right, while he flew over them? Right? Now, that's an exponentially more exciting act, but of course there was no cross-functional collaboration. And we missed that in our teams. The best ideas don't bubble up and we don't let teams collaborate cross-functioning, letting them work together with design and product and engineering. We get hung up a lot on job titles. We like to put people in boxes. You're a designer, you can't write code. You're an engineer, you can't design. Right? In reality, people have multiple competencies. People can do multiple things and we should let them contribute in whatever way they can. To illustrate this point, I'll show you this slide. If you know the answer to this question, and some of you do because you were in my class yesterday, don't give it away. Who is this? Does anybody know who this is? This is a, mu a music conference. Someone has to know who this is. It's not me, and it's not Spinal Tap, okay? Who is it? Don't know? Okay, I'll tell you who it is. Jeff Skunk Baxter. Jeff Skunk Baxter is a founding member of Steely Dan, and he's a Doobie Brother. Okay. 30 years in the Doobie Brothers, founding member of Steely Dan. Any you guys know what he does today for a living, if you weren't in my class yesterday? This is what he does for a living today. I'll let you read it. He's a consultant to the U.S. government on missile defense. That's what he does. Guess what? Why? Because he knows about this. He's passionate about it. He has another competency. Besides being a kick-ass guitarist, he is also an expert on missile defense. Right? Now, if he was to show you his business card that said, Steely Dan guitarist, Doobie Brothers guitarist, you would never let him within a thousand kilometers of a conversation on missile defense. Right? But the fact is, he knows a ton about it. Don't limit your team's creativity. Right? Don't build a culture that fears failure. Learning comes from failure. If the failures are small, the learnings are big. If you scare your people, they will not do their best work. I used to work at a company called Web Trends. They're the grandfather of analytics companies. They've been around forever. And we had a vice president of engineering 
literally, this is no exaggeration, no joke, he would walk up and down the cubes where the developers worked and threaten to fire them. What are you doing today? I'm working on this feature. Hurry up or you're fired. No exaggeration. Guess what? Those engineers did just enough work not to get fired, and they were searching for a new job at night. That's how it worked, right? When you set deadlines, they're arbitrary, and you know they're arbitrary. Right? They're just a motivational tool. Almost every single time, there's an arbitrary deadline to hit. And when we fix deadlines, we typically fix scope. When we fix time and we fix scope, one of three things happens every single time without fail. We move the deadline, we reduce scope, or we, do, we work in crunch mode for 80-hour weeks to get it done, and then everybody quits at the end and goes to work somewhere else. Right? All this builds a lack of ownership, a culture that doesn't want to own the product, or what we call in the States, CYA culture, a culture where everyone just wants to cover their ass to make sure they don't get fired. One last anecdote before I finish up. Last summer I did a gig with a company um, in New York that hired me for five weeks to evaluate five products. They did a little heuristic evaluation about five products. They dedicated one week per product, five days per product, five products. One of those teams took four days to get me the password to sign into the product. Four out of the five days that they were paying me for, it took them to give me the password. Okay, that's it, there was no more time after that because no one wanted to be the person who gave the consultant the keys to the castle for fear of getting fired. That's what happens when you build this culture of fear. And so when you build this culture of innovation, it changes the way a team works. First and foremost, the team takes smaller risks. This could arguably be the minimum viable product for the GoPro camera, right? <laughs> you, take, you take smaller risks, right? Because you're, you're kind of taking this attitude that we don't know what the end state is. We're always moving from doubt to certainty, right? We built modal overlays to test whether or not customers actually want a feature before we actually build the feature. Right? It's cheaper to build that modal overlay than it is to build a feature. Let's learn, and then let's figure out if customers want it. And what we're doing is we're putting a brain on an agile delivery process. Many companies use agile these days, and it's, it's become really great at delivering, at efficiently delivering high-quality code, but not great at determining what to build or how to design it or how to optimize it. And so by building learning, continuous learning, conversation with the market, we put a brain on this Agile process. Now it's very, very important to remember that you cannot take design, desirability, and usability out of the equation, right? We talked about this. Works as designed is not good enough. This is a picture of my gym where I exercise when I'm home in New Jersey, which is rare, all too rare these days. Um, this is my favorite feature at the gym. It's called the cardio theater. It's a dark room in the back of the gym where they show a movie on a big screen and you can run on the treadmill or on the elliptical while walking. It's essentially like you're running in the cinema. It's kind of cool. I really like this feature. Every day I come in at 5.30 in the morning, the guy came in at 4.30 to open the gym, he turns the lights on, he pushes play on the movie. Right? That feature works as designed as far as he's concerned. And I get there at 5.30 with a couple of other folks and we start running back there. And as soon as you get more than one person running on a treadmill in this room, you can't hear the movie anymore. And I have to go back to the front and tell him about that, right? That's works as designed, it's unusable and it's undesirable. Okay? We cannot take design and usability out of the equation. And we, and we can measure that by giving our teams clear definitions of success. 
we can tell the teams when customers change their behavior in a certain way that we can measure, we know we're building and designing things the right way. We can let our teams contribute in whatever way makes sense, design, development, copy, content, marketing. And most importantly, we can let our teams self-organize. Okay, we don't have to impose a process on our teams, Agile or Waterfall or Lean or XP or Kanban or whatever you want to call it, right? Because the teams can determine how best to get their work done if you let them, right? You can encourage them to maybe work in short cycles initially and, and reflect periodically, right? Do a retrospective of some kind. But when you start to impose a process on them, you can break their stride and their efficiency. This is a quote from Jeff Nicholson who, who invented the post-it note. And he said that 3M, as soon as they saw the post-it note, they wanted to put Six Sigma on it immediately, which optimizes production and manufacturing. They didn't even know if it was a good idea yet. Let the teams figure out how to do this. So I've given you guys a lot of ideas today. Why, why should you do this? It's a lot of work. It's culture change. At the end of the day, it's not just process change. It's culture change. Why should you do this? It's really hard work. Three things. First and foremost, you'll make your customers happy because you build products they actually want to use and like using. The more they use it, the better your business does. You'll reduce waste internally and cost by not working on projects that don't ship or that don't meet customer expectations. You build more stuff that works and that actually ships. And then finally, you increase employee morale. People will want to work with you. They'll want to work at your company. They'll feel like they're part of something. They'll be passionate and they'll be loyal. All of this Everything that I just told you boils down to this. You have to transform your culture from one that values delivery to one that values learning. Thank you very much. Now, before I take questions, one quick note. Um, I, give, I have copies of my book on that table back there, and they're free. So please grab one. I, I ended up with, with uh, about 20 or so extra copies while I was here in Germany. I'm not putting them back in my suitcase to take back to, to New York. So if you'd like a copy of the book, please grab one. They're on the table uh, back there. Um, thanks again for listening. Questions? Do you take questions? I guess now everybody's running. That's fine. Uh, swarm, swarm. <laughs> meanwhile, before we hand over to, to the audience for your questions, I want to take the opportunity to ask you one question because I think you, you gave a lot of very convincing examples yeah. uh, and reasons why we should aim towards such a culture of innovation, towards a culture of learning. Yeah. And I assume, I mean, you're, you're traveling a lot, you're talking to a lot of executives from, from many large companies. Probably it sounds as convincing to them as it sounds to us. Yeah. Where do you think is the problem in, in convincing them to yeah. really make the necessary changes? It's really, so, let me, so I'll tell you another story because um, okay. I, I, I talk to the people all So I, I was working with a company earlier this year um, that's in the car dealership business and, and we, did, we did some consulting and some training with them and they, they're, they're jumping in with both feet into this way of working and um, the challenge becomes in skeptical managers who are afraid to let go. They're afraid to trust the teams to come up with good product ideas. Mm -hmm. That's really the risk. They've been, they've been trained in schools. If they've got an MBA, they've been trained to tell people what to do. They've been trained to manage delivery because it's easy. Managing delivery is easy. It's a binary, it's a binary thing, right? Did you ship the feature? Right? Which is what their boss will ask them, right? Did you launch the iPhone app? Yes, we did. Terrific. Did it increase mobile commerce by 15%? You didn't task me with that, right? You tasked me with, with launching the app. 
And so that's what they manage to do, and, and they're afraid to let go. So this company that I did some consulting with earlier this year, we did a, we did a bunch of trainings and in-house workshops, and it really felt like they were, there were about a thousand people, and it really felt like they were, they were getting it. And I got an email from one of the guys that was in the workshop, and he said, look, we're gonna make a real push into this, Q4, this outcome-based learning, outcome-based learning-based approach. Um, how do we measure success? Because we came up with a list of, of ways to measure success for this. And the list was um, the number of experiments that they've run, the number of assumptions that they've invalidated or, 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 in, or validated, um, the number of customers they've talked to. And it was like it was like he stabbed me in the heart with that list. Uh, because I'd spent so much time and, and energy with them. Um, it's, it, it's, it's not about that at all. Right? It's about how much value are you creating for the company. Right? It's about how much uh, did, did, did you reduce cost? Did you kill a project that was never going to succeed and save the company a bunch of money? Did you launch something and prove that it actually uh, was something the customers wanted? And, and it's getting them to think about that in this new outcome-based way that's the most difficult part because they have to trust the teams. And they don't trust their teams. That's been the most difficult part. Great, thanks for the yeah. Okay, now to the, to, I think we do have an audience microphone. Oh, it's right here. It's here. It's here. Thank you, great talk, of course. When you, Thank you. talked about the silos, you disregarded the writing quite a lot because it takes so much time and slows things down. Can you say anything positive about the writing? No, no, so, so, please, uh, so, so uh, written, uh, written communication is what I mean, right? I, I, I write books and so I'm happy, I'm thrilled, I, I love writing. But written communication is difficult because, um, but inevitably, especially in larger organizations, you're going to need to document stuff, right? It has to happen. The point is not to get hung up in creating that as the source of communication on the team. Let the team work in the ways that I described, and once they've made decisions or committed down certain paths, then document it if you need to for, for support, for future onboarding and training, for maintenance, for whatever it is, right? So there, there's, there's always a need to, to document things or to communicate visually, but don't let that be the sole method of communication. And don't let the teams focus on that as being the thing that they do. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Did you ever have a, have a project that failed and that you burned a lot of money? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think that now, I mean, these guys mistrust uh, their teams. I mean, that's the Sounds reason why, my baby. Well, I mean, but, well, but, but, I mean, but they keep doing things the same way. It's, 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 you know, it's the definition of insanity, right? They keep, they keep managing the same way. They keep structuring projects the same way. They keep making the same demands on their teams the same way. And they expect different results. And yet, that, that is the definition of insanity. That's literally the definition of insanity, right? And so, trying to get them to trust their teams. Look, in, in essence, you're saying, look, you're hiring smart people, in theory, right? You're not hiring stupid people. Trust them to do the thing that you hired them to do. They're better at it than you, right? The designer is a better designer than you are at the manager level, right? The engineer is a better engineer. Let them figure out how to react to customer feedback and adjust. Now look, it's their response, the team's responsibility to come back to the organization and say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're learning, and here's why we're changing course. I mean, did, did, did these projects fail because uh, they mistrusted their teams or did they fail because of other reasons? They, no, they, they failed because they made upfront commitments to features and dates 
that didn't ship and didn't meet customer needs. Um, you've mentioned companies shipping new code every 6.11 seconds. 11.6. You just cut it in half. You just doubled their productivity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more slower so next year it will be right. Right. <laughs> Is it in fact artificial learning, or I mean that's that's far too, too less for humans to respond to any kind of data? So I, I don't know I don't know what's happening inside Amazon. There's probably some artificial learning happening inside there at this point. I would say at this point there's still human interpretation happening, and, and you need you need both sides of insight. Let me let me be clear. You need the quantitative insight, right? What people are doing, and you need the qualitative insight, why they're doing it. If you're getting just quantitative then you have no idea what is the motivation or the reason for this behavior. When you have 50 pizza teams who contribute, that make up the number. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's how it works. Yeah. It's not the same one doing every 11 seconds. Yeah. Com yeah. Compromise each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scaling is a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, in the same vein, um, continuous deployment is this 11.6 uh, seconds uh, mm -hmm. um, is, a, is a fantastic tool. Yes. Um, and there's this. Yeah. Um, native apps. Yeah. Um, and any insight into how to faster learn from um, iterations on, on native apps that have to one now I, I we're just waiting eight days for the for the review. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's tough. It's tougher. Um, so first of all, the, the nice thing that Apple's done for us in the last year or so is is uh, seamless updates, right? So apps apps just update without any any. Um, any action on the user's part, so that's helpful, and we can still measure. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. Uh, I saw one guy give a presentation about this, and I thought it was a really interesting approach. Um, I think the company was called. I think it was called Sincerely, Sincere.ly. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But, um, but what they did for to learn uh, about iOS uh, apps is they would build free, throwaway, one feature Android apps. <laughs> So the thing that they were working on, they would break down into two or three features, and they would build Android apps that did this just this one thing, and they would deploy them in the Android market because it's a much easier deployment and learning. And they would learn from that, and they would take the learnings from that, from those experiments, throw those apps away, and build it into their iOS <laughs> apps. So that's one way that I've heard to do it. That's that's one interesting way to do it. Any other questions? Fair, fair enough. I'm not saying it's easy. They're a small team too. Um, but if I email me and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to the video. I have a link to the video. Okay? Email address is on the screen. Any more questions to Jeff? Take the opportunity. I mean, he's only in town this weekend. And tomorrow, actually, I'm teaching a public workshop over at Data House. So if, if you'd like to join me there, still got a couple seats left if I may make a plug. Just another question. Sure. So, it's maybe easy with a huge audience um, to test and to push things because you have a significant data in short time. What's your advice with um, more complex, let's say, B2B data uh, or B2B projects, which are, you know, like, you can't just test because there's also, they have to be implemented, they are part of a bigger process and yeah. stuff like that. What what is your um, what are your suggestions? How to to get there in this kind of project? Yeah, so so for more complex B two B situations where you can't just deploy and test and hope that some people do things, I think that there are there are ways to test 
that don't necessarily re require launching code. You can go, uh, you can build prototypes and go sit with people and see if they improve their efficiency in performing certain tasks. Uh, you can uh, maybe take a beta tester group from your client and say, look, we'd like you to try a new version of the software and see what happens. Um, you know, the, 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 certainly on the qualitative, so on the quantitative side of things, it becomes a bit more challenging, that's for sure. I think on the qualitative side, all the same tactics that you would use in a B2C setting are the same. So customer interviews, prototyping, usability testing, uh, beta testing, that type of thing, all those things work on the qualitative side. And that's good, that's better than nothing. It gives you some kind of insight, right? And then hopefully, maybe some of your, if you can prove that, that a new version is better than what they're currently using, hopefully some of your customers will let you then start testing at scale or, or bigger scale with their with their clients. That's, that's how I approach it. Okay. Um, I'm trying to establish some kind of innovative culture in a major um, publisher's house, mm -hmm. and it Good turns luck. out that this is like almost, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, um, bring a certain kind of spirit to the people, but I, I figure out that, at least to me, it seems like you have to have a certain kind of mindset to be open-minded to try new things, and is there any way that I could, you know, multiplicate this spirit easily yeah. to people who are maybe, I don't know, a little bit skeptical or scared? Yeah, so, so good luck in publishing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having published, I, I, I understand. Um, so look, the, 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 the best thing I can tell you to do is this, don't try to change everything, right? Don't try to impose this on everyone all at once. The best thing you can do is to take a small team, a pilot team, and empower them to work this way. Just take you know, four or five, six people, give them a project, and then if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's in your capability to do so, just protect them for a quarter, something like that. Right? And let them just give them a business objective to, to hit, right? Increase the number of downloads for some of our digital products or whatever it's right. Um, and then protect them. Just let them work, right? So so and then let them figure out how to do this and how, how to adjust and experiment and build products. Now it's their responsibility, and in order to, to, to increase the chances of your success, is to be as transparent as possible. Right? If you lock them away in a room for 12 weeks and then they come out of there at the end of 12 weeks and say, Ta-da, we did all this great stuff, no one's gonna buy it. It's just, it's just going to go away, right? Um, instead, every week they should do a demo day that says, "Here's what we did this week: experiments, learnings, new software, prototypes, videos of customers, whatever it is." And whatever you've decided to be their success criteria, they should publicize that, no matter how well or how poorly it's going, right? On a monitor or just make printouts every day. Come in and print out their success metrics and show the delta between yesterday and today. Right, so whatever, let's say it's increased digital downloads by 25%, we went up by 2% over the last, uh, over the weekend, and we went down by 8%. Well, that's terrific, and the people start to get curious about what's happening, and what this team is doing, and, um, and it becomes viral, especially if they're succeeding. So they have to be transparent and their own best cheerleaders. Um, and then hopefully, and then hopefully that, that becomes something that the, com that the company points to as a success and then they then you can duplicate because what that team does the team does two things right the first thing they're doing is they're figuring out how to work this way the way that i just described and and the second and equally as important is they're learning how to work this way in your company which is different than in your company or your company or anybody else's right you have different politics and industry and history and whatever it is 
right? And so they figure out how to deal with them, you know. Sometimes you have to bribe the legal department with a case of whiskey to let you do something, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes, right? Do whatever it takes. I'm not, I'm not joking, we've done that, right? But, right? Whatever it takes to get you to get people to start doing it, but you have to protect them. You have to let them, no one can pick off those people. They have to be dedicated to this thing for a period of time. Okay. So we have time for one more question. Do you want to? Oh, okay. <laughs> Any remaining question? Last question. Okay, Matthias, you have the last word. Uh, final silly question. You mentioned the partly tragic fate of the first cannonball. Yeah. Did, what happened to your other friend? Is he also consulting with the Department of Defense today? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea where they are. I told you, I came by. It had been 19 years since I'd last seen them, and, and no one was there. I was just. I never told you what I did, actually, and I'm surprised you didn't ask. Um, but I was the I was the sound and lighting engineer. I, I was a musician. I've been I was a touring musician for a long time. And I was going to try to get a job in the music industry, um, and uh, I was I was a, the sound and lighting engineer. And when I came back, when I saw it again after 19 years, they had replaced the band, and it was just a you know a Mac. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was that's the whole the whole thing that we had is just a Mac. Yeah. So, so that's it. Thank you guys very much for listening. Thanks a lot. This is the user experience Gandurg Radio. Thanks for listening. Visit uxhh-radio.blogspot.de for more live recordings.